Happy New Year. Now it's official. Great things for 2023 to go higher. More spirituality, closer to God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's my goal and we keep on going. This is the Tomorrow Christian Today, taking on the challenge of Revelation 6. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I was just listening to a minister on YouTube talking about, we bring our confusions to you. We bring our joys to you. We bring our lives to you. We bring the new year to you. We bring our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, our resolutions. We bring our sadness, our defeats, our confusion, our questions, our anxieties, our fears, our angers. We bring it all to you. And we ask you to please help us manage them, control them. Please take them from us. But help us, Lord, we're supposed to carry the cross. Take up the cross and follow you. Help us to take up the cross, whatever cross that we have to bear as Christians, as believers, as God-fearers, as God-thinkers. Help us to think. Help us not to just be followers like clones and just go wherever the wind of doctrine is, but rather to be thinkers who think through the power of the Holy Spirit and who respect boundaries and can listen to each other's differences, even though we may unite in our commonalities. It's my hope and it's my prayer. Help me, guide me as we study Revelation 6 and discuss it. Amen. I'll be honest, Revelation 6 kind of scares me because I think there's just so much more there than I could possibly say or think. Uh, I'll read it in the NLT, of course, but I will read it and I'm just asking God to, to give me ideas, to give us ideas, to just turn on our thinking caps. You don't have to see it. Your ma mind may seize on something else. God has given us all different minds, different ways of thinking. God invites that variability. And we are not, it seems to me, to be aligned in corporate information and corporate opinions. Because Jesus said, you're following the opinions of men in Mark 7, 7. But he said to be aligned in corporate relationships, how we relate to each other. Not just what we relate, but how we relate. So let's, let's try it. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, come. So there's a lot of power there. Obviously, the lamb which we believe to be Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is the one who breaks the seven seals on the scroll. So the seal is put there by a person of great importance, by the king, by a person with great authority. He has the power to unlock it, to break it. Because in my mind, he is showing us, remember, this is the revelation about Jesus or from Jesus to John. So he's giving us the information. He's giving us the interpretation. We have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, to understanding through Jesus. And he's giving that to us by telling us and showing what these things mean. Verse 2, I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. So, Traditionally, I used to hear about this, and I used to hear that the different riders on the different horses represented the church age or the condition of the church 
down throughout the years. I thought I heard a sermon where that was not the case, but that's what I thought. Let me just read what John MacArthur has said here um, in the ESV Study Bible. Uh, Revelation 6. This lengthy section details the judgments and events of the time of tribulation, from its beginning with the opening of the first seal through the seventh seal trumpet and bold judgment to the return of Christ to destroy the ungodly. Revelation 19, 11-21. So he does say Christ is the only one found worthy to open the little scroll. The title deed to the universe. That's an interesting way of putting it. As he breaks the seven seals that are secure in the scroll, each seal unleashes a new demonstration of God's judgment on the earth in the future tribulation period. These seal judgments include all the judgments to the end. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls. So there's a lot of sevens in here. And you know, it really is something. There's a lot of sevens in our world. I was very freaked out when I discovered the coronavirus was the seventh coronavirus. And it went to the whole world. In the Old Covenant, the, the seventh day is supposed to be like the Sabbath is supposed to be representative of um, God creating the heavens and the earth. And it says in Genesis that God rested on the seventh day. Didn't call it the Sabbath, but it's like the Sabbath in Exodus 20 verses 8 was kind of a shadow or a symbol of God resting. And maybe not so much physical rest in the fact that it was a spiritual rest. There was harmony. There was a harmony there. But it seems that when we human beings questioned God and messed up the universe, that seven has also become a number of judgment. When was Jesus dead in the grave on seven? How many people are on this planet? More than seven billion right now? Are we headed towards the seventh millennium? 7,000 years of human history? I find that very odd. In Genesis 7, that's, that's the flood. That's the catastrophe, God's judgment. Uh, where he judges the world and in revelation 7 it says um, do not harm the tree or the tree or any um, trees uh, till we have put the seal of god on their foreheads and that'll be in the next chapter of revelation 7. but i always found it interesting or a coincidence that it was in revelation chapter 7. i don't think anything happens without coincidence but that's my personal opinion and I've been called a numerologist uh, in tongue-in-cheek of course but I find that very interesting a lot of sevens here so um, uh, it says here that in verse 2 it's a white horse what does white stand uh, stand for purity or does it stand for the horse stands for you know I saw a white horse standing there so it says standing, but I was thinking in my mind that he was galloping and it's very fast. And the rider carries a bow and there's a crown on his head, but he doesn't have arrows. He rides out to win many battles and gains the victory. But how come the arrows are not mentioned? I mean, is it just implied? Like, how? why would you have the bow and the, the crown? Like, that's a victor. You know, somebody on a white horse, you always think somebody comes in to rescue us, the, the rider on the white horse but there's no arrows mentioned. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now, as um, John MacArthur has said, for him, the animal represents an unparalleled time of world peace, but then he calls it a false peace that is to be short-lived. This peace will be ushered in by a series of false messiahs 
culminating with the Antichrist. So it seems that the fact that Jesus is breaking um, seven seals, that judgment is being, there's a, there's a stepwise progression of judgment. So this is not, is this the church age or is it just, you know, towards the end of time? Is this how the church morphs? Is this what it's saying that the church, even though it looks good on the outside, it looks white, it looks pure, it seems victorious, but yet somehow it's changing, it's transforming, it's, 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 it's going backwards. Because then it says the lamb breaks the seventh seal, verse 3. I heard the second living being say, come. Another horse appears, but it's a red one. What do we think about red, blood, war, slaughter? Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. Yeah. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Is this about what's happened in the Middle Ages when we've had all these wars? They say the 20th century was the most bloodiest century of all. That the slaughter and the death in the 20th century was more than all the other centuries combined. Is that what it is? It's like exponential growth of, um, you know, of animosity and aggression. Is that what that is? Is that what this is? So that's why I was a little hesitant to, you know, give my opinions. I honestly don't know. I'm really not sure. Could this chapter mean different things to people in different ages? Would this chapter have meant something different to the people in 100 AD? Or when it was read out in the churches, were the people who read, did they see their own circumstances in these words? Or did they say to themselves, I don't really know what this means. But we've had 2,000 years to look at. We've had 2,000 years of history between when this, when this was given to John and now to see the state and the condition of the world. Might we have greater or different insights to, um, to offer? That's just my thinking. Verse 5. When the Lamb broke the third seal, I heard the living, third, the third living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and wine. I don't know, I, I, it seems to me it's, we're headed towards famine here, towards scarcity, because all of a sudden a day's wages um, doesn't really get you much. It just sort of gets you by. This sounds a lot like inflation to me. Doesn't it sound like inflation? I remember when I was a you know, young person growing up in the 70s, they started talking about inflation, um, trying to explain, oh, well, we have a certain amount of money and we can't, printing more money doesn't really help because... What you're really doing is you're adding water to soup. So the nutrients are actually being diluted. So they were trying to explain inflation and I wasn't really getting it. I still don't really get it because I don't really understand money matters. But it seems to me this is famine. This is scarcity. And then it says, don't waste the olive oil and the wine. You know, we just had communion in church where the wine, the red, you know, the, the grape juice represents the blood of Jesus and the olive oil, the oil. Does that represent the Holy Spirit? So is that something, um, keep it precious, hold on to it tightly? Do we just take, take the Holy Spirit for granted? Do we take communion for granted? Yes, we do that every second Sunday of the month, but do we take it for granted? Do we just do it so many times that we've stopped to realize 
the solemnity of the situation. You know, the church that I was in, they would wash feet before they did communion. In the Baptist church, they just do the communion. And a lot of people online would say, yeah, yeah that part where we had to have the uh, skip, uh, washing of the feet, yeah, I would, I would uh, skip that Sabbath. I wouldn't go uh, to church on that Sabbath because people didn't want to wash other people's feet. I actually did wash the feet of other people. And my wife washed my feet and I washed her feet once, um, you know, when we were together uh, before the end of our breakup. Um, but in the Baptist church, they just have communion. They don't wash Nobody separates, like the men don't go with the men and the women don't go with the women and wash their feet. So they don't do that in the Baptist church that I see. Um, but, you know, it is a solemn, we are partaking of the blood and the body of Christ. And it's because of God, because Jesus was broken for us so that his blood would cleanse us and justify us so that in Christ we get to stand before God and we get to come to God in the most holy place, directly in his presence. Verse 7, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose cover was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. So is this the state of the church? Is this an antichrist? Is this what the antichrist is? He's still on a horse. But yet now the colors have morphed from something pure, white, and pristine to something evil and disgusting and decaying and decadent and dead. Like you just think of this when you see this fourth rider, you just think of corruption. This is death. This is not what Jesus is about. Jesus came to give us life. But this is not, Je this is not Jesus. Whatever this is, is this religion? Is this what happens? Is this what happened to the early church when Jesus says you've, lo you've lost your first love and now you're just going through the motions? You know, he even said that to Lady of Sia, right? Lady of Sia is the famous church. I wish that you were hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, I'd spew you out of, my, out, of your, out of my mouth. Like Jesus doesn't want apathy. He wants you to be passionate about him because he's passionate about you. God said in the Old Testament, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Do you think the blood of bulls and goats makes me happy? My, your prayers are an abomination to me because you're just going through the rituals. You've lost your passion. You know, you've lost your groove. You know, you've lost your game. You know, you had a, it was like a marriage. Marriage is all wonderful and good when you first get married. And then some marriages, they get cold. They get loveless. You've just, you've lost it. The whole point of it all, you're just, you know, I met men like this who just, yeah, I'm married. It's just, you know, I'm married on paper. We still live together, but we're just, you know, we're just kind of two, you know, housemates kind of thing, which I thought was kind of sad. But, you know, my own marriage is also the same way, just loveless, non-existent. It says... Its rider was named Death, and its com his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. Okay, when I saw that, I was pretty freaked out. Because I remember reading this during the, co the coronavirus. 
because all of a sudden we're talking about the coronavirus and it's being caught, carried by bats and we're cutting down trees and we're pushing the animals together. And so the animals are, are getting in close proximity where they nor normally would not before. And then so they're passing each other different diseases and different viruses are going to recombine and we're going to create new super viruses that are going to attack humanity. And they were talking about, you know, humans catching things from pigs. And I'm not here to open up old wounds because maybe some of you all have heard that too. I just remember reading this and I was pretty freaked out. And I remember telling my brother about this and he was not freaked out. So maybe I'm being freaked, I'm freaking out unnecessarily. But I do remember this was like, wow, is this a prophecy of viruses? This is a prophecy, you know, mankind is uh, destroying earth. You know, we're not stewarding Earth good. We're cutting down the Amazon uh, jungles and we're we're causing nature. We're doing things to nature that it would not normally do. We're removing some of the buffers inside nature. And as a result, animals are coming together in a way that they would not be coming together. And sort of the lessening of distance causes them to infect each other with different viruses that recombine, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it sounds like a bad science fiction dystopian movie, but, you know, it's just very interesting about killing uh, with disease and wild animals. Very, very strange. As Arsenio Hall would say, things that make you go, hmm. Verse 9, the lamb breaks the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. I remember people fighting about this on internet that there's actually an altar in heaven somewhere and there are people standing under who are, who are dead. Like, I just, to me, this is a metaphor. Of, like, there's a number of people that have been martyred. And, you know, verse 10, they shouted to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord. So they're shouting. But is it just, is it just metaphorical? Like, are there people actually under an altar in heaven somewhere? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. I'm not saying that something has to make sense for it to be true or not true. I'm just reading the words and trying to resolve in my own mind, my own hermeneutic, something that makes sense and something that's true. I honestly don't know. But it seems to be there's a set number of people on God's books or on God's roster that have been martyred for his sake. It says, verse 10, they shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Verse 11, then a white robe was given to each one of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. What does that mean? Does that mean more people will be martyred? Does that mean that Jesus will not come until this certain number, you know, you know, dies for, for, um, to glorify the name of Jesus? You know, I used to hear that and it was like, why do people have to die for God? Like, how does that glorify God? Because it says in the Bible somewhere, I know precious in the Lord are the death of his saints. Well, Lord, if they're so precious, why are you letting it happen? But, you know, I have to remember that God is allowing the world to go the way it is. God is allowing Satan to have some power. God is, is, is giving Satan some rope because God is allowing Satan to show his true colors. Satan was defeated at the cross because it was shown that Satan is not just an accuser of the brethren and say, oh, God's being unfair. Satan is the one who is unfair and his character shows it by his actions. And he would go, 
he wouldn't think twice of murdering the Son of God, which he did definitely do on the cross because he showed it. He played a part in that. Those soldiers were very cruel to Jesus and they were beating him up and hurting him. And that's Satan's character. That was satanic and demonic. How those people were saying, crucify, crucify him when they were in the crowd. I, I wouldn't put it past Satan to have some of his angels in that crowd stirring up some of those people with their demonic activity. But Satan is being allowed to show his true colors so that when God destroys him in Revelation 20 verse 9, nobody, nobody in creation in the universe will stand up and say, well, Lord, if you had given him more time, you know, if he had just had a little bit more time, maybe he would have redeemed himself. He would have repented. No, no, no. Satan is being allowed to show that he's gone beyond the power, that he's committed the unpardonable sin, that he's blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that he has no more conscience, and he won't repent because he cannot repent. He cannot see his sins. He's so locked up in his own pride, he can't turn around and say, God, I'm sorry for my actions. It does say in the Bible, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan will acknowledge that God was fair, but I think that's a little bit different from acknowledging, I'm sorry. Yes, God, you were fair, but I still don't want to be under your authority. And he won't be, because Revelation 20 verses 9 says the fire falls upon him and all the hordes of people who are attacking the new Jerusalem. And that is my opinion. And I'm entitled to it and I might be wrong and I always I always add to that remember I don't tell you what to think I ask you to think about what I tell you but what I tell you is my hermeneutic of what's in this of what's in this chapter and I'm trying to understand just like everybody else but I have my opinions that seem may seem right to me but my opinions may not be right I don't have the full picture never said I did I wanted to mention something and I just I I just forgot oh yes um i think it's in romans 12 about um so romans 12 so we see that um a robe is given to each of the people of the souls underneath the altar and they're told to rest a little a little longer so they're almost told say okay god will take care of it in his time like that's what i understand from this verse they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. So God is allowing these ugly things to happen. He's allowing Satan to play his hand. And there is going to be more suffering and more tears, unfortunately, because the plan's not done yet. God is still doing things, even though it just seems, you know, it seems sometimes the world is just ready to wrap up. But God is allowing things to happen according to his timetable. Satan is not in control. Satan has been given power, but God is the one who is in control. And God has always been in control. And there is never a day gone by when God is not in control, even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. But I want to read this. I, I felt um, inspired to read this verse here. Because I guess for me personally, you know, I kind of wonder, Lord, things have happened to me personally. How long does it have to keep happening? Or when are you going to fix things? Or when are you going to make it right? And I don't know if this really answers it. But it says here in Romans 12, it says verse 18. 
If it possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can't control what other people do. You can only control what you do. You know, revival of a society will not happen without you because we all have to work on ourselves. We can't change society. We can only change ourselves and influence other people. But if everybody has that, has that mindset, then yes, society would change and revival would happen. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So God is saying that he will take care of it. Even though you may say, I want, I want it done now, or why can't we do it now, or, you know, why, why do I have to wait? God knows what he's doing. He's patient, and he's waiting for things to play out according to his plan. And when God has a plan, God's plan is going to work. Whether we want it to or not, whether we try to get around it or not. Um, and that's, that's the way it is. God is in control and you can't go around God to get to God. You can't skate around God to do your own thing. Because if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. And if he doesn't want it to happen, it's... It's not going to happen. We have to wait for God's plan to fulfill itself. God knows what he's doing because once, once sin is dealt with, it will never arise again. This, this, this questioning of God's authority, like what Satan did in the beginning, this will never happen again. So whatever's happening now has to be thorough and complete because there never will a day come in the new covenant universe, in the universe that's been promised by Revelation 21 and 22, because in there there's, it says tears will not arise, death will never arise again. Never in that universe will anyone ever question God's authority or God's decision because everything will be totally harmony with God's will. So every question, all of the questions, all of the problems, all of the issues are going to be answered in this, in this space, in this dichotomy of good and evil. That's my opinion. Verse 12, I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal. So he's breaking the seals. He's breaking these seals. They're not, they're not, um, you know, the seal can't be broken by someone of lesser authority and it, it, it can't be broken except by the person who made the seal. And God, God, God the Son, Jesus, has the power and authority to break the seals and to show us what is going to take, path, take to transpire. It says, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree, shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. So if I go, let me see what um, if, um, Dr. MacArthur has in here. So if I turn to back to the notes, quickly go to this. Because I think when I read this, when I read verse 12, what I see is this is the second coming. This is the end of the world. It says here, he says, the force described in the seal is overpowering. 
While the first five seals will result from human activity God used to accomplish his purposes, at this point he begins direct intervention. Matthew 24, 29. What is in Matthew 24, 29? Let me see. So what verse is he referring? Let me see what he says. Matthew 24, 29. Sorry if you hear my flipping Bible here. It says, oh, it's exactly the coming of the Son of Man. That's the, head, that's the heading here in the ESV. Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So I guess I'm reminded that the language in Matthew 24, 29 is exactly the language that's here in Revelation 6, verses 12. So I would say tentatively that this is the second coming of Christ. This is the end of the world. And I think that the second coming of Christ, where every eye shall see him, I think that's Jesus coming back. And that's, that's all the passages in the Bible. So with all due respect to people who believe there is a pre-second coming rapture of the saints, where they're just raptured out of the world, it's not my hermeneutic. I just can't see it with all of these verses. But if that's you, um, we can respect each other's differences and we can agree to disagree in a loving way. Verse 15, everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This sounds very scary because it sounds to me that these are the people who are in mourning. They don't want, they, they see Jesus coming out of the sky and they realize that he is true and what they believed about him was that he wasn't true, that he wasn't coming back, and it was all a big fairy tale. And now they're shocked to discover that they're wrong and they, it's too late. Because these are not people who are happy. Yay, Jesus, all right, this is our God and he will save us. I don't think the people in verse 15 are really thrilled that Jesus Christ is coming through the sky right now because they don't act like they're thrilled. They're scared to death and they want him to go away. They're hiding themselves just like Adam and Eve hid when God came a-calling in the Garden of Eden and said, Hey, uh, guys, um, where are you? And they were ashamed because they knew they had sinned. And these people are not just ashamed in verse 15 here. They're downright scared. And they're in mourning. And I personally don't want to be one of those people. I'm not saying I'm... I, I, I always want to qualify this because I always feel like I have to apologize. I don't want to ever give any kind of indication I'm smarter than anybody else or better or more righteous and more holy or holier than thou but I think that I have enough brains to read the Bible and I believe that it's true and I don't want to mess up my life and my eternity and when people just have their beliefs and their religion and they say it doesn't really matter I just don't know why Maybe, maybe I have an overactive imagination. I can actually see this. I can see the terror on these people's faces and I just don't want it to be my face.
I will be afraid. Don't get me wrong. I will be very frightened. I can't even fly in a plane properly without clutching that seat as that thing is taken off the ground. I start saying, Lord, please don't let this plane drop because it feels like it's going to drop. I can't even do that. Meanwhile, people next to me are like, guys like sleeping, totally fine. You know, the plane is totally tilted, like, you know, at 90 degrees to the earth, but he's totally fine. He's okay. He's, 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 he's all right. You know, he's as right as rain, (laughs) but I'm having a serious stomach anxiety problem. So I would be scared if this were happening, but I don't want to, I don't want to be afraid of Jesus. I want to say, I know him in my life and he's not going to, he's not, his power is not going to obliterate me now. And I, I think I should really add this, even though I know we're getting a little bit long here, sorry. I'm just a wave of words here, but I think that I need to add this. So the people in Revelation 6 verse 15, I think that this is the same, this same verse here explains this. It says here, 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 and 8, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. So here's the simple thing. Do you want to get out of this? And Do you believe this is true? Then obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 12, 29 to 31, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's relationships, that's other-centered love, not self-centered love. Obey that and you will live past this horrendous moment that the Bible says the majority of people will not get by. Now it's not too late. This is like the guy in The Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, And he gets back to the bridge and he says, get me back, get me back, Clarence, get me back. And it's just a dream. And he could change his life around, just like Scrooge. Scrooge gets up and he says to the woman, hey, what what day is this? Oh, oh, it's not too late. Oh, thank you, spirit. I can change things. I can change things. This is our second chance right now. This is 2023. This is where you turn it around. This is where you say, I'm living for Christ right now starting from this very moment i've done a lot of bad things i've done stupid things and i've done stupid things too but here's where we turn it around and we say we resolve that from this moment on we're going to live for christ and we may fall and make mistakes but the majority of our life the trend of our life is upwards and onwards even if it's a slow slog because the people in revelation in in revelation 6 are not happy people because they're crying out because they know they're about to die and they cry to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb so jesus has wrath because revelation 19 11 says a sword goes out of his mouth they know it they feel it and they know it's coming for them it's not coming for you because you know Jesus now. K-N-O-W God, K-N-O-W peace. Jesus is your savior and your peace and your king. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? 
the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Jesus says, I share the throne with my father. They're both on the throne. And because of them, because of Jesus' death for you, and because you believe, because you are in the spirit, that wrath will go over your head and it will not touch you. May that be our prayer for 2023 and for all eternity. God bless.